Isaiah 52, starting with verse 13. (laughs) Now, this passage might have sounded very strange to you. Probably not if you've heard it before, and most of us have. But this is a very strange passage. And I think the reason it's not strange is that we're so familiar with it. But let me tell you, it is strange. (laughs) Very strange. Suffering in this passage is the path to victory. How strange is that? A disfigured, ugly twig of a man is the victorious arm of God. That is so strange. God is pleased to crush someone who is blameless. That is strange. And what is even, in a somewhat different way of saying it, strange, (laughs) is the way that this chapter is divided. (laughs) Whoever divided this chapter didn't know what they were doing (laughs) or just messed up. Um, It should begin in verse 13, chapter 53. Um, Sometimes most of the chapter headings are helpful, but this one was not. Um, John Calvin called the chapter division a dismemberment. (laughs) I agree with him. Um, This section, what we're looking at, this passage is all about the servant. This is the last of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this is not what we would have imagined. This is not what we would have come up with if we were devising a plan of salvation. This is absolutely strange. So the question is, who is this servant? Right? And we, I think all of us know who the servant is, but let's just remove any doubt and go to the New Testament passage, Acts 8, verse 34 through 35, where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this passage out loud, and he asks Philip who the prophet is speaking about. If you remember, Philip responds by telling him, this is the good news of Jesus. And he explains from beginning to end. Jesus from the scriptures. And so what he is saying there is that this passage is about Jesus. Without a doubt, the servant here is about Jesus Christ. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with this passage? Right? I mean, this is all about the servant. (laughs) This is all about the work he does. And it tells us his character and who he is based on his work. And so the question is, what are we supposed to do here? And I want you to know that there is only one application in this whole chapter. And that application is the word look. It's behold. And so that is exactly what we are to do with this passage. We are to look, we are to behold the servant. And because I can't come up with any better application than Scripture gives, we are going to leave the application right where the Bible puts it. (laughs) I'm going to call you to do one thing this morning. And really what I'm calling you to do is the best thing you can possibly do this morning. 
And that's to look and behold the servant. Now, there are five stanzas to this poem, and it is a poem. I will give the heading to the five stanzas, and then we will look at what this particular stanza says about the servant so that we can behold him. And I just want to briefly ask the question, why do we need to look at this servant? And really, we could go on a long time with saying why we need to look at the servant. But really, what we're seeing in the servant is this is the mighty arm of God for salvation. This is the only place where the salvation of God can be found. You know, God has been saying throughout Isaiah, particularly in the last couple chapters, He's been saying, I am going to bring my might, bear my mighty arm of salvation. God has said that over and over and over again. God keeps telling his people, this is the hope you have, that I am going to bear my arm of salvation. But he has not clearly explained how he's going to do that. And here is one of the clearest places in all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, where we learn how God saves. This is one of the clearest passages for us to understand the manner in which God saves. You need eyes of faith to see the glory of the servant today. If you are to be saved, if you are ever to be saved, you must See the glory of God in the manner in which he saves, or you will not be saved. With all the problems in the world, the one thing you need today is to see the servant. You know, it's really simple, isn't it? We can get so complicated, and sure, there are complicated things out there that we need to be concerned about. But right here is where all the blessings of God come from. There's not one blessing that does not come apart from Jesus Christ, his grace and his mercy. So let's not miss him. Let's see the servant today, and let's rejoice in God's salvation that he has brought, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the might of God, and the way he saves. So look at the exalted servant who surprisingly succeeds at fulfilling God's purpose in verses 13 through 15. Now the words, behold, my servant shall act wisely, mean simply that the servant will succeed in the task that God gives him to do in saving his people. This is not merely saying that the servant will act wisely, although it is saying that, but it means that he will accomplish the goal that he has been called to accomplish. This means that his efforts will be successful rather than a failure. He will bring about the desired results that he has been sent to fulfill. And we know that this work is his saving work, the greatest of all works that's ever been undertaken. And the result of his success is what? It says here that he will be super exalted. Notice the words here, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. <laughs> the wording emphasizes the greatness 
of the status that will be his upon accomplishment of his work of salvation. Now, notice the resulting status is not just his exaltation. The he- in the Hebrew language, they would use words to give exclamation part- points and to emphasize something and to magnify something. And so basically, he says the same thing three different times to emphasize the super exaltation of the servant. He shall not only be high, he shall not only be lifted up, but he shall be exalted. Super exaltation. So such exalted language is elsewhere in Scripture reserved for God himself. In Isaiah, this this similar phrase comes up a number of times, and every time it's referring to God himself. I think that's significant for us to understand. God is the one who reserves the status of being super exalted. And here we see that same status being attributed to the servant. Now the language of Christ being exalted in Philippians 2 verse 5 through 11 likely came from this passage. Where Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Now, what we see here is that the servant will accomplish his work and be exalted, which will be surprising because it does not seem like he is the one that could ever have accomplished this work. Look at verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Who would you ever expect to be the arm of God's salvation. If you were to imagine who would be God's arm of salvation, his mighty power to save, what would he look like? I mean, surely not this person, right? No one would have expected this person to be the saving arm of the Lord. You would not have picked this person in a pickup basketball game. You wouldn't have picked this person to do anything. This is not the person you would ever have picked for anything. The question is why? Because it says here he was so unrecognizable, he was so marred, he was beyond recognition. It is as if they will step back in horror and ask, not if he is the servant, but is he even human? And we know he was literally disfigured at the cross, don't we? But I think the point here goes beyond that. It means, based on worldly standards, you never would have been able to recognize the servant. He had nothing recognizable about him in saving ability. He is not what we would ever have defined as a savior. We wouldn't have wanted him to be a savior. He is not what we would look for. It would, in fact, require divine revelation to see him as anything apart from repulsive. But despite all appearances, we are told here that the servant would surprisingly accomplish the task of saving God's people. 
that's a read in verse 15. What, it, what an incredible task that this servant accomplishes. And we see a little bit of it in the word sprinkle the nations. The sprinkling has to do likely with cleansing. And it was used of the work in the temple for purification. And so what it's likely saying here is he would do the work that would make his people from throughout the nations clean. He would purify them. He would make them holy and righteous. He would justify his people through his work. And that would be the successful outcome of his work that he came to accomplish. And what a magnificent work he accomplished. A work that is unparalleled, a work that is God-sized in its ability to restore God's people to himself. And isn't that what God came to do? And isn't that what we need? We need to be restored to God. And that's what the servant does. And those throughout the nations will be shocked to silence when it is revealed to them that this is the arm of the Lord. How shocking is the work of God? We never would have imagined that he would do such a thing and that he would work in such a way. Secondly, you are to look at, at the suffering servant who is rejected and despised by men. The question we need to ask is whether anyone responded properly to the servant. Did anyone believe in the servant? Did anyone look with faith at the servant and see him for who he truly was? And that's what it asks here. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we need to be reminded that the arm of the Lord refers to the power of God. Right? And God said he would bear his, his powerful arm before the people. He was going to bring them salvation. And so the people were longing and looking for his mighty arm to come. And this is the arm of the Lord that he sent to save his people. This is God's salvation that we are looking at right here. And so the question is, who has believed him? And who has received the truth of who this servant is? as the arm of the Lord? And this is clearly a rhetorical question, isn't it? Uh, no one received him. No one believed on him. We naturally would not look at him as being the one who could save us from our sins. Who could have possibly believed that this was the arm of the Lord for salvation? And the reason no one believed in him, because there was nothing outwardly attractive or appealing or desirable about his appearance. Notice the, the language here. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, you would have expected this glorious, majestic oak tree, right? This massive oak tree that would have come up from the ground, from fertile ground, it would have bloomed and grown and been massive and burst on the scene, right? But instead, what we have is rather like a little, thin, unwanted shoot that springs from the dry ground 
that comes from ground that is not even really that fertile. <laughs> what do you do with those little twigs that look ugly, are really thin, and you have the opportunity of cutting it off and getting rid of it? And, and don't you feel somewhat powerful when you do that? You cut off that twig and get rid of it. It doesn't belong there. You snap it into oblivion. We have no value for a deliverer that has no majesty or beauty in appearance. We rather value the deliverer who is forceful, dominating, attractive, magnetic in their personality. Oswald puts it, Oswald puts it this way. To choose this servant as your deliverer would be as shocking and off-putting as it would be to have the ugliest man in a group chosen best-looking. And so because of his appearance, he was therefore rejected and despised by men. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised means belittled, treated with contempt. Rejected means to treat as worthless, unworthy, to hastily dismiss someone. Thirdly, Look at the suffering servant who saves his people through bearing their sins. How would the servant save? Amazingly, the servant saves his people through bearing the punishment of their sins on his own back. You see, the, the suffering that the servant endured was wrongly perceived as being punishment from God. For his own sin, rather than as being punishment for our sin. That's what it means when it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet notice what it says here. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, we looked at the servant and thought he was suffering for his own sin. And it's not that everyone had this robust theological view of his death. As if everyone just assumed, although it would have been popular in the day to think that if anyone was suffering, it would have been because of their sin. Yet we tend to look at anyone who suffers and think, even if we don't mean to, in the back of our minds, we think there is something that person deserves for what they're getting. Don't we? It is simply natural for us to think that those who suffer are in some way, are in somehow worthy of it. We think they look repulsive as much as we would hate to admit it. Well, how wrong could we have been? It was just the opposite. He was not suffering for his own sin. He was suffering for our sin. He was carrying our sorrows, bearing our sins. He was being pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our twistedness. What an incredible thought that he would carry our griefs and bear our burdens for us. And it's not saying here, and be very careful, it's not saying here that he took our sorrows with us 
that he was a good example and came alongside us and bore our burdens with us and helped us with our burdens. It is saying that he bore our griefs and sorrows for us. He bore them for us. And so he bore the punishment for our sins, not because of his own sin, but so that we would not have to bear them ourselves, so that we would be healed. And that's what verse 5 says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I want you to see the awful language used for what was done to the servant. I want you to hear the suffering that he went through. He was pierced, which has to do with death. The word pierced has to do with dying. (laughs) One commentator goes so far as to say that it is the strongest term for violent and excruciating death in that language. Crushed is even stronger than the English word implies. It has to do with breaking into pieces or even pulverizing something. It is crushing. And the degree of the suffering of the servant, why do we need to see that? Why is it so important that we understand the language and the way his suffering was described? And the answer is because it shows us how seriously God takes our sin. How grave our sin really is, is described in the suffering that Jesus undertook. We tend to take light of our, of our sin, don't we? We tend to make it appear like it was a mistake, not a big deal. Something that deserves other people passing them over. But God will not let us do that. They demand justice. A righteous God will not pass over sins. He cannot pass over sins and remain righteous. And so the greatness of our sin indicates how great of a punishment we deserve from a righteous God. There is no peace without justice paid. Everything is out of order. Everything is broken. We are killing ourselves. We are destroying ourselves. And unless someone takes our place, our sins must be paid by us. Every single one of them. Now the word but at the beginning of verse 5 is significant because it tells us that we're contrasting the wrong understanding for why the servant suffered with the right understanding for why the servant suffered. And the reason why the servant suffered was for our transgressions and our iniquities. He suffered in the place of his people. He is bearing, he was bearing the sins of his people away from them. So that we would not have to bury, bear them at all. What a glorious thought that our sins, not in part but in whole, have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Here's one of the clearest state, statements on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now one of the best pictures on carrying something away would be Samson, right? Remember when he picked up the gates at at Gaza and carried them to the top of a mountain? Now that is an incredible picture of strength. I mean, just imagine that. This little guy, maybe big comparison to other people, but not that big comparison to God, 
carries this huge, huge thing. How much greater is it to carry our sins on his back? That is the picture of power and strength. Only God could do something like that. What an amazing picture. And we must not miss the picture. We must not miss the power and the strength and the beauty and the glory. We magnify those who have strength, don't we? We look at athletes and we say, that person is strong, that person is mighty. How much infinitely greater does God deserve praise for what he has done for us? And what is the great result of having our sin removed? Well, notice complete peace. That is wholeness. That is well-being in every way that matters and healing. And that is just another way of saying the same thing. We are healed. We are truly, truly healed. What that means is we are restored in our relationship with God. For that is the beginning and the end of peace. That is the beginning and the end of all healing. Is to be restored in our relationship with God. That is where true health and true peace comes to. You have complete, complete health and complete peace in every way that matters if you are in a right relationship with God today because he has bore your sins and he has taken them away. What an awesome thought. So how do you best illustrate this glorious point of what the servant accomplished? And the best way to illustrate this is by understanding it in the light of sheep. Notice there's one illustration here that's given, and that is sheep. Both the people and the servant are illustrated with sheep, but in just different ways. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we need to understand what sheep are like to understand how we are like them. And I want to warn you, this isn't flattering. Sheep can be pretty stupid, single-minded, unaware of circumstances, and extremely helpless, right? Their minds uh, look, apparently, at like a clump of grass and uh, nothing else, and they see nothing else, <laughs> like the hill they're going to fall over. <laughs> I don't know. When they are frightened, they have a tendency to bolt off in any direction. Therefore, they easily are led astray and easily get lost. We are like sheep in that we have gone astray. Every single one of us has gone astray. And that means we have rebelled against God. We have gone contrary to the will of our mighty God, who is good and right in all his ways and in all his degrees. We have chosen our own path. We have gone our own way. We have chosen to rebel against his righteous and good rule. Now the difference, you know, we're not completely like sheep. The difference is that unlike sheep, we have gone astray willfully. We have gone astray willfully. You know, sheep can hardly be responsible for their actions. But we know exactly what we're doing. We rebelled with our eyes wide open and have turned away from God. So what does the Lord do for such willfully straying sheep? He lays on his servant our iniquity. And notice that it's God who does that. You know, it's really important we understand that it's God who is laying our iniquity on his back. 
Our consequences for our sins were laid on him. He takes the consequences of our behavior in our place. And really the entire sacrificial system was about restoring sinful people into fellowship with the holy God through a substitute. God says that the soul who sins is the soul who will die. And that's not merely physical death, that's spiritual, eternal death. And we need to have our sins forgiven, don't we? We cannot escape the consequences of our sin. And there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. And the only, the only thing that can take away our sin, the only substitute that can take away our sin is blood. We need life for life. And not only is a substitute required, but a qualified substitute who can restore us into fellowship with God. And this is the only way for a holy God to justify rebellious sinners and still be just in doing so. But the question that needs to be asked is, can another sheep really die for a person's sins? Can a sheep really be a substitute for another's sins? And that's exactly what Micah asks in Micah 6, verse 6 through 7. And the answer is absolutely not. A sheep cannot truly take away the sins of another man. So you might ask, what is the value and the point of the sacrificial system? And the answer is this. The sacrifices pointed in faith toward the one true sacrifice that was coming. This is what John the Baptist said when he cried out, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1 verse 29. All of those sacrifices were pointing towards faith, towards the final single sacrifice who would truly take away the sin of the world. Fourthly, look at the suffering servant who silently bears our affliction. He not only suffered great injustice, the greatest injustice ever experienced, but he did it without retaliating at all. And that's what we read in verse 7. You see, the servant, it says here, was treated unjustly. And he was not only treated unjustly, but he was treated more unjustly than anyone has ever been treated before. The words oppressed and afflicted have to do with harsh, unjust treatment. What do you do when you're treated unjustly? What's your immediate response? You know, we are very passionate about justice in our lives, aren't we? We fight, we battle, and it's not always wrong to do that, right? We want justice. That's okay. But sometimes justice can be the most important thing in our lives. We have to get it. We love it supremely. It is our greatest desire. Right? Jesus, on the other hand, was treated with the greatest injustice, and yet he did not defend himself at all. When sheep are brought to the slaughter, they do not protest what is taking place. They do not understand what's going on. The servant did know what was going on. And he was silent as a lamb as he went to the slaughter. Now you might say, didn't Jesus actually say something when he was crucified? And the answer is yes, he did. He did speak. But if you look at the account, you will see that he did not defend himself. He answered when it was demanded of him. 
but he did not defend himself. He willingly gave himself to the unjust suffering that was ahead of him. Jesus' refusal to open his mouth was not weakness at all, as we might imagine, but rather it was him having complete control of the situation. Have you ever thought about that? That the silence of Jesus was his sovereign control of the entire situation. He was controlling the situation. He was bringing it to its ultimate end by not defending himself. And that is exactly what his goal was. To become the sacrifice for our sins. So he was not out of control. He was in fact in control. And his very silence was his means of controlling the situation. The mystery that no one can understand was that he was suffering all this injustice for their sin, for their sake. In verse 8, it says that, By oppression and judgment he has, he has taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And notice it keeps going back to that over and over and over again. And it says here that he was treated with such injustice that he was brought to the very end. He was killed. His life was taken away from him. That's the end of injustice. That's the very, um, the height of injustice was that his life was taken away from him. And they did not consider that the oppression and judgment he faced should have fallen on them. He would end up suffering the very fate of the wicked, even though he's completely innocent. To be innocent means that you are completely guiltless, both in word and deed. And notice verse 9, that's exactly what it says. Both in word he was innocent, and in deed he was innocent. If you are innocent in word and deed, you are innocent indeed. And so he died with those who were wicked. He died the death with those who are wicked, yet he was buried with the rich. And we know that this is amazingly fulfilled in Christ, wasn't it? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. So we see the, the father's approval on his son, even though he was buried, he, he did die with the death of the wicked. Finally, Look at the suffering servant who reigns in victory. His suffering was necessary for bringing about God's desired plan and purpose. This was not some tragic event that just happened to come upon some innocent man. Notice verse 10. Notice these shocking words. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was God's will... And even better, it was God's pleasure. That's really what is meant there, is it was the Lord's, God's pleasure to crush him, right? He has put him to grief. So what was the purpose that why God wanted the servant to experience such great suffering? It sounds cruel, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the purpose is that through his death, he might become an offering for sin. His sacrifice would be completely sufficient for us. God made him an offering for guilt in order to deliver us from our great enemy, our own sin. And what a loving, 
purpose the father had for crushing his son. We see here what would have enabled the servant to accomplish his mission are the promises that God made for completing the task. Although he dies, he would see his offspring. How many offspring did he see? <laughs> he sees countless children coming from every race. Although his days would be cut off, yet his days would be prolonged. Although his life appeared to be the most fruitless, it would be the most fruitful life ever. <laughs> no life would even compare to the fruitfulness of this life. And we're told that the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Not only that, but he would be completely satisfied with his accomplishments. We see that in verse 11. The picture here is of a servant who is completely satisfied. And why is he so satisfied? The answer is because the righteous one has made many righteous through bearing their iniquities. We go back and back to that point. He is satisfied in the work that he has accomplished. He is satisfied in saving you. He is satisfied in bringing righteousness to his people. And the exaltation that that brings to his name. Not only will he be satisfied, but he will also be rewarded for his accomplishments. We see that in verse 12. And the image there is of a victory parade. It's as if the father is giving him the spoil of his victories. And pouring out on him the spoils of his victory. And what's amazing about this is that you and I get to share in the spoils. That is unbelievable. It is unbelievable that we are joint heirs with Christ. We get to share in the victories that Christ accomplished through bearing our own sin. What an incredible Savior and what an awesome salvation. Through his death, he has now become the source of all God's blessings. You can be righteous only through his servant. All of God's blessings come through him. You can come home to God and be restored to your creator because of what Jesus, his servant, has done. Therefore, the servant is exalted to the highest of heavens. His name is above every other name. There is no name like his name. Do you have eyes of faith to see the servant today? Do you see glory when you look at the servant? Or do you see weakness, suffering, and failure? Or righteousness, hope, and salvation? As John the Baptist said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What you need more than anything today is to look at the servant. What everyone needs to do, whether saved or not saved, is look to him. Ask God to help you to see Jesus today. Beg God to open your mind up more than it is right now. Give you a clear view of who he is. You need to see him right now more than anything. If you see him, run to him. Why would you wait another moment? Any sane person who sees Jesus for who he is, will run to him regardless of what anyone else thinks. And don't drift away from him. There is nothing more dangerous than drifting away in our affections, than drifting away in our love 
for the servant. I can't help but think of Israel and their wilderness wanderings when they were all dying because of their sin. They rebelled against God and they were dying. And so God sent fiery snakes among them to bite them. And they would die when they were bitten. After the people confessed and asked for mercy, God ordered Moses to put a snake on a pole and everyone who was bit could look at the pole and they would be saved. In John 3, verse 14 through 15, Jesus compared himself to the snake on the pole, saying, everyone who looks to him will be saved. Listen to these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, God, what can we say but thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for bringing a complete salvation to us. Lord, we are lost and hopeless. We have nowhere to go. Lord, we have chosen the way of death and destruction. We have rebelled against a holy and righteous and good God. Lord, I thank you that you did not leave us. You did not leave us to our condemnation to the miry pit that we have dug for ourselves. Lord, you have sent your Son. You have come to us. You had humbled yourself, and you died on a cross. You took the lowest position. You died the most horrific death. You faced the, the, the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might be restored into fellowship with God. Lord, we thank you for these great truths that we have heard today. Lord, we are standing on a firm foundation today. We have a salvation, Lord, that cannot be shaken. We have a hope in the heavens, Lord, that can never fade away. And Lord, we just want to thank you. We want to praise you. We want to rejoice in you today and say thank you for your great salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who does not know you, I pray that today they would cry out to you, Lord, save me from my sin. Deliver me into your kingdom. Have mercy on me, a sinful man. And Lord, may you bring salvation to our midst today. Lord, do a mighty work. Be pleased to save and bring joy to your people today as we think about you and all that you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen.